the issue of the environment is something that doesn't generally get a lot of airplay in the church. Um, after uh, Clint's fantastic sermon uh, last Sunday, and if you weren't here, can I encourage you to go and have a listen to the podcast? It was absolutely um, outstanding message. I feel the pressure this morning. At, uh, um, in fact, I was talking to somebody during the week, and they've been a Christian for a long, long time, and they were saying it's the first message they'd ever heard on creation care and on environment issues. And um, it is one of those uh, touchy uh, subjects that draws a, a, a range of responses from the Christian community. For some Christians, uh, the idea of environmental care is met with indifference. Um, some Christians think that God is ultimately going to destroy the earth. Therefore, there's no good reason for us to take care of it. You know, if it's all going to uh, dissolve and, and get burnt up there, and we're all going to go to heaven when we die, what's the point of, um, of taking care of the earth? That's kind of an irrelevant thing. Um, for others, um, they see environmental issues as a bit of a diversion. So some Christians think that caring for the environment is keeping us from the main task of the church, which is to win souls. And last Sunday, Clint did a fantastic job of reminding us of the, the cosmic scope of salvation, that the death and resurrection of Jesus is good news, not just for people, but also for the planet. Other Christians kind of see environmentalism as, uh, as a dangerous kind of subject. They think that we could take creation care just a little bit too far and find ourselves uh, in a kind of an extreme uh, left-wing political um, place or that we end up embracing some New Age philosophy that leads us to worshipping the created, that's pantheism, worshipping the created rather than the creator, and we'll end up spending our time hugging trees. I can imagine some of you in a caftan, you know, with the bongo drums out and kind of skipping and dancing to whatever it is. And some of us can be a little bit freaked out by environmentalism because it might lead us down that path. For others, it's kind of a debilitating or distressing subject because some Christians think that global warming and climate change and greenhouse gas emissions and food and water scarcity, coral bleaching, soil erosion, pollution, loss of species and deforestation, just to mention a few things, is just all too overwhelming. And we can read things like the Worldwide Fund Living Planet Pro, uh, Report that showed between 1970 and 2012, the number of animals in the wild declined by 58%. So in just over 40 years, there was almost a 60% reduction of wildlife. And we hear those statistics, and for some of us, uh, we just want to bury our heads in the sand and hope that the issue will go away because it's just too depressing to contemplate. Then for others, it's a bit of a dilemma. So some Christians are concerned that if we take our resources, uh, our energy, and our focus and direct them towards environment environmental issues, then what's going to happen, we're going to take away valuable resources, energy, and focus away from other important issues such as feeding the poor. And so we end up with this ethical dilemma. You know, what is more important, protecting the environment 
or feeding starving children. And I think that's a real, for me, that's a really valid uh, concern, a real, really important issue. And then for other Christians, uh, this idea of the environment is actually just part of being a disciple. That creation care is an important part of being a follower of Jesus and that as a disciple, uh, we make uh, lifestyle decisions that seek to nurture nature and cause us to live in environmentally responsible ways. Now, I'm not sure where you sit on that spectrum. Perhaps you're a person who's indifferent. Perhaps you see the, uh, environmentalism as a diversion. For some of you, you might think it's a bit dangerous. For others, it's debilitating and distressing. For others, it's, it's an ethical dilemma. Or for others of you, it's an issue of discipleship. I don't know where you sit on that spectrum. But I'm just grateful that we have a book called The Bible which answers these and other concerns that we might have about how we as Christians ought to live uh, in response to um, the environment and what I believe is a clear mandate and requirement of the Bible to care for the world of which we uh, live. So the biblical basis, I believe, for environmental care is, uh, number one, God made creation. In fact, the Bible begins, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It launches with these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God made all that we see. And the Bible begins by establishing that we are not here by random chance or by accident. The earth, the universe has a designer and a creator. And it was all fashioned and formed by God. Every amoeba, every mountain, every river, every animal, every insect, every bird, every tree, and every ocean are the result of God's grand imagination and creative power. There's this, this wonderful story about um, Sir Isaac Newton, who's regarded as one of the most influential scientists of all time. And so Isaac Newton was a Christian, and he had a scientist friend who was an atheist. And they'd, they'd often um, have debates, and they spoke many times about the origins of the universe. And Newton's friend's uh, opinion was the universe just happened by chance. It was all just an accident. We're here just by, 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 by some random, uh, random act. And so Isaac Newton had designed a scale model of the solar system, and he arranged for a craftsman to, uh, to build his design. And at the center of the model was a large ball made of brass, which represented the sun. And revolving around the sun in this model were smaller balls that were attached to spokes of different lengths. And those balls represented the various planets. And they were all geared together so that when a crank that was on the front of the model was turned, the planets all moved in their orbits around the sun. So one day, um, Newton was reading in his study when his atheist friend came to visit 
And his friend uh, saw, his mo- uh, saw the model and he, he was studying it really closely. He was quite fascinated by, by what he saw. And he said to Newton, wow, this, this is tremendous. Who made this? And Newton was kind of nonchalantly, nonchalantly um, reading and he casually answered, nobody. And his friend turned to him and said, you mustn't have heard uh, heard me. I asked, who made this wonderful model? And Newton said, oh, oh, nobody made it. Um, Those balls and gears just randomly appeared and put themselves together all by themselves. (laughs) And his friend got quite upset. He said, oh, you must think I'm a fool. Of course somebody made this. They are a genius and I'd like to meet them. So Newton put down his book and walked across the room to his friend, and they stood in front of the model. And Newton explained, he said, you know, this model is just a poor, small imitation of our wonderful solar system. Yet I can't seem to convince you that this model does not have a designer or a maker. And there and then, um, Newton's friend realized that if this this model of the solar system had a designer and a maker, then the true solar system must also have a designer and a craftsperson who put it together. And there and then, Newton's friend became a Christian. Great story. So God created this planet now, I have to be honest with you, I don't think the Bible, the Bible is not a, not a science book, and I don't believe that the Bible provides us with a clear uh, understanding of, of how this world was created, other than the fact that God somehow spoke it into existence. There's debate as to whether it was a, a six-day creative process, or well, who knows. But what, what theologians do know from the language that is contained in Genesis chapter 1 We might not understand how the world was created, but we do understand why the world was created. And the language of Genesis chapter 1, according to uh, theologians, is that it is a picture, the earth is a picture of a temple. And God's intent or purpose for this earth, what is a temple? A temple is a meeting place between God and humanity. And so God's intent for this created earth that we inhabit was it is to be a meeting place between heaven and humanity. So God created creation. But God not only created creation, God loves creation. John 3.16, most of us in this room could, could uh, quote this uh, scripture uh, without even having to, to think. For God so loved the, the world. The word their world in the Greek language is the word cosmos. It's the word cosmos. And so God is declaring in one of the most well-known verses in the Bible that God doesn't just love people. But God also loves the planet and everything in it. In Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. So matter matters to God. Matter matters to God. 
And so the Bible is consistently expressing God's loving concern for the environment. So when you go into the law of the Old Testament, which kind of regulated the life of Israel, it regularly makes mention of environmental sustainability and managing the earth's resources. And it reflects God's care and concern. So for example, um, God says animals, not just people, need to have a break one day a week. Isn't that amazing? And then the soil and, and the plants, according to God, are also entitled to a rest every seventh year. They're to lie fallow. And, and, and then when we step into the, the prophets, there's this little, the, the, the book of Jonah finishes uh, with this little kind of, uh, I've always found this verse really fascinating. And this is God speaking. So, you know the story, Jonah was sent to Nineveh to declare God's judgment. And God relented from, from that judgment because of the Ninevites' response. And this is what, what, it, what God says. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people? That's like a me, that was a mega city in, in the ancient world. Um, in which there are more than 120,000 people. And this is this next little few words. And also many animals. So God was pleased that he didn't have to execute judgment on Nineveh, not just because it would mean um, the sparing of human lives, but also that the animals would be protected as well. God's concerned not just about people, but animals. And then just this gorgeous verse in, in Matthew 10, 29, where Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of a father's care. You know that old hymn, his eye is on the sparrow. I don't know the old hymn, I know the first line. <laughs> so I'm not that old, you see. And he watches over me or something like that. But the kind of the, the 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 point of the song is if God is watching over the sparrow, then He's got to be watching over us. If God cares when a, a sparrow falls to the ground, then, wow, he must take interest in our lives. And I kind of figure, if God, lo if God loves creation, then we ought to love it too. And the key to loving creation is observing it. Miranda, do you want to come and share with us? I was talking to Miranda um, during the week, and we were just chatting this, about this whole thing about appreciating uh, creation and to appreciate something, you have to observe it. And she shared with me just this wonderful practice that she has developed. Thanks, Miranda. I've got so many notes. Well, I was just sharing um, with Steve about... Um, nature journaling. I don't know if any of you have come across it, but it was something I encountered when I was teaching um, in a little Christian school in Cape Town, and they were um, sort of trying to follow the philosophy of a Christian educator from the 19th century called Charlotte Mason. And in the 19th century, um, it was a common practice to keep a nature journal and just record things that you saw and drew, draw and paint and so on. 
And so each of the children in the school had a nature journal. And as teachers, we used to take them out on nature walks or into the garden once or twice a week. And they would have to um, look around and find something that interested them and then record it in their journal. And the way we did that was we mostly used watercolor paints and each child had a little box of watercolors. We used to take that out into the garden and they'd sit there and paint and write what they saw and observed. And it was, it was a really exciting time and the children loved it. And even though in the beginning, often they'd say, oh, there's nothing here, I can't find anything. But then as their eye became attuned, they, they saw more and more. And every time you went out, oh, you know, the, the poppies have now opened. And oh gosh, the petals have disappeared. Now there's, there's a, a pod there. And then it bursts and the seeds come out. And so the whole process um, was observed. And um, this is like a, in, from an educational point of view. The children are really making a heart connection with nature and they're seeing the process before they actually start researching. So when we got back into the classroom, then, um, you know, there would be books that they could research from. Um, if they saw a bird or something, you know, you, it's hard to draw a bird because they flit around. So then we'd look it up and try and see what, what bird was it, and, you know, then they could paint it and so on. any rate, it was so enjoyable that... Um, I decided to do it myself. And I don't do it all the time, but I do it from time to time. And some seasons I do it often and other times there's a long gap. My daughter and I, we always take our paints and our journals on holidays and do some then. But um, the other day I was sitting on, I, was, I woke up and the birds were going crazy and I thought, I wonder what birds those are. I really should do some nature journaling again. And that's what I was sort of telling Steve about. Um, and, you know, so I've started my, my journal now again. And it's just so exciting to observe things more closely. And when you record them, you actually have to look at it really closely. And I find that you, you start making that heart connection, which is the, the core of learning and the core of revelation. And the, um, it's quite a spiritual process, really, because, you know, God doesn't explain himself to us. He reveals himself. And nature is one of the places he reveals a lot about his character. And... Um, it's just wonderful to slow down and take that time to get in touch with that revelation. Um, you know, Jesus himself said to us that we should look at the birds and consider the lilies. And it's an intentional thing. You can't just look at it as you pass it in the car. You actually have to sit outside. You have to hear the sounds. You have to smell the smells. You have to feel the breeze, and as you do that, you know, you become aware of God's care. And he says, don't be anxious. Look what I've, look, 
Just look around you, you know, absorb something of my presence. And then something else I've become aware of recently is that creation actually praises God. Um, and every part of creation has a different way of praising God. Like the birds sing and they make beautiful sounds. The trees dance in the breeze. Water makes music. Thunder claps and rolls. You know, and all these things sort of convey different aspects of, of God and we can enter into that worship as well. Anyway, yesterday I was sitting on the, on the, um, the deck and I was writing down some thoughts and, about this today, what I would say, and then suddenly I became aware that there were some interesting birds in the trees just next to me. So I thought I'd just um, end off by reading this little bit that I wrote. And then, I'm not a very good artist, but it doesn't really matter. You know, it's for, only for you to look at. And it's just enjoyable to try and paint it and draw it or whatever. So I, I looked up the bird and I tried to draw it, paint it. And I think I've got a reasonable um, sort of representation. I won't show it to Steve because I, I know he's an artist and... It's probably not up to, up to scratch. But anyway, this is what I wrote. While sitting on the front deck this afternoon, I became aware of little chirping, piping sounds coming from the trees alongside me. It took some time to locate the source of these sweet, contented notes. Eventually, I spotted them, little brownish-gray birds with cream under feathers and now and then a flash of yellow. About the size of a finch, hopping high in the moonlit trees. They have long, narrow beaks and appear to be eating something from the blossoms. Insects, nectar. On trying to identify the birds, I think they are yellow-rumped thornbills. So I don't know, those of you who live here, I've only been here about two months. Perhaps you've seen these little birds, little round finch-like birds, and they make sweet sounds. Anyway, so that was just what I wrote. You know, you don't, it doesn't have to be a long essay. Some people like to put poems into their nature journals or hymns or, um, you know, you can do whatever you like. It's your journal. Um, but it's just a really refreshing, rejuvenating practice. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks. Well done. Thank you. That's lovely. So God made creation. God loves creation. And thirdly, creation belongs to God. Deuteronomy 10.14 says, Look, the highest heavens and the earth and everything in it all belong to the Lord your God. You know, the earth and its, all its resources don't belong to anyone. Uh, they do not belong to Gina Reinhardt or any other mining magnate or to BHP or to any other to a government. Actually, everything belongs to God. My body, according to 1 Corinthians 6, is not my body. My money is not my money. My ministry is not my ministry. And when it comes to the earth, it doesn't belong to us. We are simply guests, and we are guardians. 
And there's a really significant phrase in Genesis 2 that gets lost in the translation from the Hebrew into, into the English. And it says that God t- took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the word translated to work actually means to serve. It means that within the created world, we are servants, not masters. And the Hebrew word translated as to take care of carries the sense of guardianship. We do not own the world. God has temporarily placed it in our care as trustees for the benefit of future generations. And so we, I believe, need to learn to see our lives in relationship to the environment through the lens of stewardship. Now, I want, to imagine, want you to imagine for a moment that one of your really good friends is going away on holidays and they've decided to loan you their E-type Jag. Oh, please, God. So they give you the keys, they're off for a month or two, and you have the keys to their E-type jack. I can guarantee that when you're given that car, you're not going to go out onto the streets and do donuts in that E-type jack. Or you're not going to go drive through the McDonald's drive-thru, grab your whatever it is, your McFlurry or your Coke and your chips and all that sort of stuff with the kids and kind of eat and drink and then kind of throw the wrappers into the back seat, which is actually very, very small in the E-type Jag, Um, you're not going to throw your food wrappers into the back there. You're going to take good care of it. Why? Because you appreciate the value and the worth of the vehicle and also because you know it's not yours. It's your friend's car and you'll have to return it and give an account for it one day. And the same applies for our guardianship and stewardship of the earth and its resources. We are not to trash it. We are called to take care of it. So three things to remember. God made creation. God loves creation. And creation belongs to God. So just in wrapping up, um, the earth is our home. There are currently 7.5 billion of us inhabiting this planet. But by 2050, there will be, if the coronavirus doesn't get us all, there'll be 9 billion of us on this planet. And we are reliant on the quality of air, water, and land to survive. Now, this is a remarkable thought. In the known universe, there are 100 trillion galaxies, each with about 100 billion stars. Yet, we know of only one place in this vast, expansive universe capable of supporting living organisms. And that place is planet Earth. What did I say? Um, A hundred trillion galaxies with a hundred billion stars, and yet there's only one known place in the universe able to sustain living organisms and it's the planet on which we happen to be inhabitants of. And what I'm about to say is incredibly important. Every identifiable environmental challenge has one underlying cause. 
climate change, greenhouse gas emissions, food and water scarcity, uh, coral bleaching, soil erosion, pollution, loss of species and deforestation are all principally caused by one thing, and that is consumerism. That's a fact. So the thing that is driving the current environmental crisis is actually human consumption. So let me just give you some stats. Every day, we consume over 2 billion cups of coffee. About half of that is consumed by people living in Melbourne. <laughs> over 130 million chooks a day. 89 barrels of oil and about 1 billion disposable nappies. Now, here's the, the question. If everyone who lived on Earth consumed like me, how many Earths would we need? And you can actually find out by going to... Uh, this is just one um, calculator. It's called uh, footprintcalculator.org. And the footprint calculator measures the type of food uh, that you eat and where it comes from, the size of house you live in and the number of occupants, the type of transportation you use and the amount of plane travel you take and the amount of waste that you produce. What has really shocked me is that my I've gone from being a meat eater to principally a vegetarian. I thought my footprint would have reduced, but my footprint is actually increased since living on the peninsula because I used to cycle, walk, catch public transport. I used to live in an apartment with, uh, there were five of us in an apartment. Now there's Louise and I rattling around in a big house and my footprint has not quite doubled but almost doubled and I was quite shocked. But if we were to take uh, each of our data, it's quite likely that the majority of us here would uh, utilise between two and four Earths. Now, that is obviously, number one, it's unsustainable. So if every one of the 7.5 billion people on the planet lived like I did, we actually couldn't continue. We would exhaust the Earth's resources. So I take ownership for my consumerism. And secondly, not only is it unsustainable, it's also unjust because the reality is the privilege of living in a first world set setting disadvantages the world's poor, who are most adversely impacted by my lifestyle choices. And so what can we do? Are we just powerless? Should we just bury our head in the sand? Well, I think what we firstly need to do is actually try to address that which drives our personal consumerism. What, what makes me so consumeristic? Is it, is it greed? What, what, what might that be? I, I suspect it's not that we are bad, it's just that we are blind. We're not bad, we're just blind to our consumeristic traits, our nature, and the impact that it has upon the world. And I just think we need to, first of all, just put us 